Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. So hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Dong, and I'm here today at McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario, to interview a few of the superstars from the simulation business. Before I get started and ask them a few round of questions, I just want to get everyone to get acquainted with the, the team here. So rather than myself introducing everyone, because I have a few people here, a lot of people are here, actually, why don't I get everyone to introduce themselves? Who wants to go first? So my name's Megan Doyle. I'm a pediatric emergency doc who most recently joined the team here at Mac in September after doing a simulation fellowship in Calgary uh, with some phenomenal mentors, uh, Vince Grant and Adam Chang. My name's Leanne Patel. I'm the clinical pharmacist for the ED here at McMaster Children's. Uh, I've worked here for about 10 years and been involved in simulation for various projects throughout my career here. Um, So my name is Mandy Brar, and I'm the nurse educator for the department. I've worked in this department for 11 years um, as a staff member and then transitioned into the role of nurse educator. I've been a part of the simulations, like participating as a staff member and now um, helping conduct them. I'm Kevin Middleton. I'm the department lead for the simulation and outreach education program here at McMaster Children's Hospital. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Dr. James Young. I I am a pediatric emergency physician. I am one of the directors of our Pediatric Emergency Medicine Simulation Oversight Committee uh, with a specific interest in uh, simulation and simulation-based education and simulation-based research as well. Uh, I joined the the division in 2015 after doing from Calgary um, also as well, after doing some work uh, with my mentor as well, Dr. Uh, Adam Chang and Vince Grant. My name is uh, Mohamed El Turki, and I am a pediatric emergency uh, room physician at McMaster Children's Hospital. I've joined the department in 2015. I'm also known as Mo El Turki, and I have a specific interest in simulation. All right, so thank you everyone for introducing yourselves. That was much easier for you guys to do it than myself. So before we begin, I have a few questions that I've set up with the team here to go over and just talk a little bit about simulation training program here at the McMaster Children's Hospital. My first question then to one of you guys is, tell me a little bit about the simulation training program here at McMaster Children's. How did it start and what did it consist of? Who were involved? When do you do it? How often? All the the awesome golden questions for you guys to, to share with the audience here today. So I'm going to start talking about the historical um, perspective um, in our department with simulation. Um, A phrase that I like to think about a lot is uh, standing on the shoulder of of giants in medicine and in science. Um, So we started in 2015. We both came from centers where the ED was a leader in simulation-based learning activities. Our simulation program in McMaster predated our work. 
A lot was done already by Dr. Wang, the chair of pediatrics at McMaster, and uh, Ehud Rosenblum, who was also a pediatrician doc here. Uh, both have moved on and transitioned to other centers um, around the same time when we started, which left um, a bit of a gap to fill. Um, Dr. No was the only one left organizing simulation for the learners in our department. We also had Kevin Middleton, who was a huge asset and acted as a simulator educator and technical expert at the children's um, and also outreach programs uh, that he was involved in. Uh, so from the get-go, um, me and James participated in a few simulations given our interest, um, and a few things were apparent and identified as opportunities for improvement. Um, so what used to happen is often staff physician would run a simulation that was completely directed at residents and students. Sometimes a nurse or an RT would come in and help um, play a role rather than participate in the sim. It was never really clear if the RN is acting as a confederate or um, actually participating in the learning activity. Um, I particularly remember a time when I was debriefing a team of residents and nurses about the challenging sim case. Um, and it was clear during the scenario that the nurses knew exactly what was going on in this challenging sim, but didn't say anything and participate and help the residents out. I was curious why that is, and, it, uh, and the nurse thought that she's just there to test and help test the residents and not, uh, not actually learn or participate. So that took me back a bit, um, and uh, we, wanted, we really wanted SIM to be a multidisciplinary and intradepartmental um, uh, activity. We really value the experience of our allied healthcare professionals, um, our pharmacists, our nurses, our RTs, um, and, the, and the things that they bring to simulation um, to enrich the physician's experience as well. Um, we didn't want it to be a waste of their time. Um, so, so we saw an opportunity to improve on several things. One being is changing the environment and culture of simulation from resident student learning tool to a whole departmental, multidisciplinary, and intra-departmental learning activity that also involved our nurses, RTs, child life specialists, social workers, and physicians. Um, writing new cases that are well laid out with specific learning objectives and are consistent in the same format, enhancing the debriefs from a didactic and medical case-based learning into learner-based debriefing with a focus on crisis resource management, communication, and using techniques described in the literature that we have learned um, from our fellowships, um, um, like, for example, advocacy inquiry. So one of our first uh, um, continuous practice development um, simulations were actually in a nursing education day um, in our pain clinic. And uh, we made up bottles of fake drugs and uh, low fidelity mannequins that uh, Kevin Middleton provided us. Um, we designed a very good two case, I think, what I think is very good two cases uh, that were challenging for the staff physicians, invited MDs and uh, ran it several times with all our RNs and MDs. And uh, we got a lot of backing and support um, uh, from um, an interest from those simulation, uh, simulation activities, uh, which led to the leadership noticing the work uh, and also uh, supporting uh, our initiative. So yeah, like as, as uh, Dr. Altorki Mo was saying, we uh, when we first started the program, essentially, we really wanted to build something from the ground up. Um, there was really a lot of great groundwork that was laid out, even in the sort of design of our emergency department, using simulation as a way to physically determine how to lay out our trauma 
trauma runes, for example, um, one of the big things we had found was, you know, we had two separate resuscitation bays that actually didn't even have a door that connected them. And that was some of the work that Dr. Uh, Rosenblum and uh, Dr. No and Dr. Huang just all kind of put together and was, was able to design something very unique and innovative and, and in terms of using simulation from our, our, our merged department design. So when we joined, there certainly was an opportunity and a gap for us to really to, to use simulation and really build upon that sort of amazing foundation and really pick up that program in from an educational basis. And we just wanted to build a program that started off from the ground up again as an interprofessional uh, style simulation. And when we say interprofessional, uh, a, a simulation program that really um, has uh, involvement of uh, interprofessional colleagues that are definitely not just medical colleagues, uh, but uh, all of our allied healthcare professionals, where we not only just do simulations where we work together um, or do a simulation working uh, where we're just doing an activity together, but actually a simulation where we learn from each other, learn about each other, and learn uh, how to all improve together as a, as a group with the idea that we really wanted to improve patient care. So what we built in the last uh, two or three, actually four years now, actually, um, since we started doing this whole 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 business, is that we've uh, we've built a fairly robust program. I would, uh, I'm happy to say at this point, we do a wide variety of things. Um, our big uh, area that we focus on is in, uh, interprofessional in situ simulation, um, and a lot of our efforts are really directed towards a continuing practice uh, development level, so uh, i.e. kind of staff level uh, simulations. Uh, we certainly still do a lot of resident or, or, or medical trainee level education, but a lot of our work has uh, been focused in terms of that. So specifically, the simulation activities that we are involved in, um, they include weekly simulations that we do uh, with our nursing colleagues, uh, our, our resident trainees that are rotating through the emergency, uh, pediatric emergency department uh, for, their, uh, for their block. Uh, we also do um, monthly, we call staff level sims or continuing practice development sims, um, where we focus on medical resuscitations and complex high level simulations that involve um, very challenging presentations and rare presentations that we have to be uh, specifically prepared for in, uh, in the unique setting of pediatric emergency medicine. We also do monthly uh, trauma simulations that are uh, we developed in collaboration with our trauma head, uh, Dr. Karen Bailey, uh, where we uh, basically activate a uh, complete uh, trauma fan out uh, for a child needing medical resuscitation, which includes not only our emergency team, it includes our pediatric um, intensive care or critical care uh, team, our pediatric surgery team, our pediatric um, uh, anesthesiology team, um, to basically test that system as well. Uh, other sort of simulation activities that we uh, do are in situ, uh, we call them kind of mega code simulations that involve um, the uh, L&D team, um, our uh, pediatric neonatal resuscitation teams, um, as well as our pediatric emergency team, uh, because McMaster Emergency um, uh, is, sorry, McMaster Children's Hospital, in fact, is also a birthing center as well, and we, we can often see uh, kind of dual presentations of a, of a perinatal uh, presentation along with a maternal resuscitation that needs to, to occur at the same time. 
Um, on top of this, uh, we've also uh, branched out into doing a lot of outreach simulation for um, uh, community emergency departments and, and partners. Um, these include um, outreach simulations for uh, the Niagara region. So we've been out to essentially uh, five out of the six centers at uh, Niagara uh, in the Niagara Health System. Uh, and that was to address sort of uh, latent sort of safety threats that had occurred with prior uh, resuscitations that were involved. Uh, and we've also branched out to doing um, uh, other sort of simulation, outreach simulation uh, sites. And part of this is also with some academic work with uh, a research project uh, that we've been uh, fortunate to be been, uh, enrolled with. Uh, so we've also done some outreach uh, education with uh, Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital, with uh, Joseph Brandt uh, Hospital, and um, Southlake Regional Health Centre uh, out in uh, Newmarket, Ontario. So, wow, four years, eh? Time goes by. You know, it's four years. You guys have talked a lot of cool stuff about the origin stories and how it came to be. But coming from HHS, I mean, we've started our own little simulation program going uh, for staff especially. But I think there has been challenges trying to get some buy-in from everybody. And so what I wanted to ask you guys was, what are some challenges or some roadblocks that have come in developing this program and and kind of making it to where where it is now, how and how successful it is now. Can you guys comment a little bit on that? Well, thanks, Kevin, for asking that question. That's a, such an incredibly important question to ask because um, we did encounter um, some challenges when it came to our simulations. As Mohammed had mentioned, we did have a period where we started to do simulations with Dr. Rosenblum. And then um, with his departure, there was a bit of a gap within our department um, where simulations weren't happening. So the culture had changed um, towards not having simulations within our department. And so when we wanted to try to start up the program again, it was getting that culture change to happen within our department. So having nurses identify what their learning needs were and the physicians as well. We had huge support from our leadership team, Dr. Anthony Crocco and our manager regarding um, getting them to support uh, simulations within our department. Um, we created um, what we call a brown bucket list where staff could um, drop their ideas off into this bucket list to say things that they want to practice. Um, as well as um, we sent out like a needs assessment um, for the staff, physicians and nursing um, to kind of understand what their learning needs were. And then we started to kind of build our cases around those needs that were identified. We do um, a simulation newsletter, we call it Simbits. And so the reason that, that came about was um, we recognized that um, staff found it valuable to be part of the simulation, but we also wanted to, there was a lot of learning opportunities that were identified within the simulations, but we also wanted um, to disseminate that information to the, a broader audience, um, which included our physicians, um, our nursing staff, our child life staff, RTs, other departments that um, work within our emergency department. So part of our, our simulation after after the fact, after we complete a simulation, we get together as a group, uh, our organizing team, and discuss what went well and what could be improved upon to identify some of those learning opportunities. Um, we usually draft the Simbits letter together and circulate it amongst ourselves just to make sure that we capture everything that was uh, involved in the simulation for what learning opportunities came up. 
Uh, and then it's more broadly shared with the staff that Mandy mentioned as well so that everybody can benefit. Even if you weren't in the room during that particular sim simulation, everybody gets the benefit of that knowledge and that learning opportunity that came up from the simulation as well. So that's a really cool idea. So you essentially have people run the simulation and then you put it all together and so that everyone benefits at the end of it as well. So that's kind of a cool simbit thing. I'll, maybe I'll take that to my group and, uh, and borrow it. All right, so let's keep moving on, guys. We talked a little bit about how the program came to be, the history, some of the cool aspects, tackling some of the roadblocks. And I just wanted to clarify, what do you think are the main objectives of the program? I and mean, what are the, the people that are going through it really getting out of this and going through the simulation? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can speak a little bit to that. So part of the thing, and I think one of the actual great reasons that we've been able to achieve all this, all that we've been able to do is we've actually have sat together a lot as groups. We've had a lot of meetings on this side um, to really work together as a team to formulate what our main objectives of our whole simulation program is. Um, and we've we've formally actually established an, an overarching educational aim, which I'll, I'll read it out essentially. Uh, but primarily, it's our, the the main goal of our um, continuing practice simulation program is to develop and maintain our clinical skills um, for practicing pediatric emergency uh, medicine um, with. Uh, specialist physicians and our allied care, healthcare providers to allow uh, delivery of healthcare of the highest quality uh, for children and adolescents uh, requiring medical and trauma um, uh, resuscitative care um, in our pediatric emergency department at Big Master Children's Hospital um, and uh, at Big Master University Medical Center. Uh, we've sort of also at the same time uh, established our formal educational visions uh, about how we're going to achieve uh, this educational aim, uh, which uh, includes uh, conducting uh, regularly scheduled interprofessional in-situ simulations uh, with that, again, core focus of uh, improving care for children. Uh, this, that also includes conducting simulations that are uh, feasible, that are sustainable within the culture of uh, a live emergency department, being that we're in an in-situ setting, um, and uh, conducting high-level simulation ca cases that are, again, also designed from the ground up to be interprofessional um, in nature. Uh, in addition, uh, we wanted to conduct simulations that incorporate um, the highest quality evidence and the most recent evidence, uh, so that it is useful to all the uh, all the participants that are, are that are attending our simulations. Um, and I, I think um, to be really important, uh, conducting all simulations um, according to uh, a basic respect of the psychological safety and the fundamental um, uh, assumption uh, we call in simulation that all participants are highly trained, highly dedicated, and highly intelligent uh, practitioners um, that are really genuinely trying their hardest and are aiming to improve with the chief goal of, of, of wanting to care better for their patients. That's pretty deep, James. Good mantra there. I, I love it. It makes me want to do more sim now. So maybe we'll, we'll crack out a sims case after this uh, podcast. <laughs> the next question then for all of you guys the SIM program at McMaster Children's consists of all members of the health team, like you guys talked about. Can you talk a little bit about the experience, like just from how that's gone through and, and how you feel about, you know, working together and how it enhances the experience of that? Well, we, we believe that bringing all the members of the team together, uh, 
is what leads to good care, that because we rely on each other and we work together on a, a daily basis to provide the care for the patients who come to see us, then it only makes sense that we would do simulation together at the same time where those players are present. And we can then maximize or, or optimize what we're able to accomplish by learning with and from each other and, and by practicing that teamwork. Um, our simulation covers a broad variety of topics and, and different acuities of patient. But when it comes down to resuscitation, you know, there's so much to do with, with teamwork and how we communicate together. And we can't practice that realistically without all of the members of the team there. So whenever possible, we draw in all of the people who would be there during that specific case or that type of case for that reason. And, and that's how we can hopefully transfer the learning that we do in SIM more realistically to our patients when we provide care at the bedside. What are some integral components that makes uh, a simulation program great? So we talk a lot about in the simulation world, debriefing and some cognitive learning strategies, positive reinforcement, feedback process. We talked about sim bits. What are some of those components that make that program or make a specific simulation program great, especially for the audience out there that, that want to create their own and want to know the components that, that, that would make their program successful? The basis of a good sim experience for anyone involved comes down to the debriefing opportunities. The team that has said, we're here to help facilitate learning rather than teach at you, I think is one of the most important components to making a strong sim experience for everyone. So building a core of facilitators who can be curious about what they're observing and ask questions in a way that helps people understand why they did the actions they did throughout that simulation and pull out the thought process behind that as the core of that advocacy inquiry style debriefing can be really valuable. Um, there's also other forms of debriefing and ways to get around having a really big team. And I think building that expertise in debriefing in a core of people is really what you need to start. I've been able to join the team here while they have had all of this stuff you've heard about. What I'd love to see our team continue to build is an interprofessional debriefing team. Uh, as you've seen here, we've got Kevin, who's a respiratory therapist, Leanne, who's a pharmacist, Mandeep, who's a nurse, and then myself, Mo and James as physicians. And I think there's a lot of wealth in the knowledge of this team and continuing to build that resource is, I think, one of the biggest pieces that you can do to build a good sim team. Another really important part of a simulation program um, is to establish a culture of safety. All healthcare providers should feel safe in, a, in the learning environment that they're in, uh, that they're not being judged by others for their performance during the simulation, um, that they have a chance to speak their mind, ask questions um, in a safe and non-judgmental um, area. Um, this is particularly challenging in an inside to sim, uh, where you have to do simulation in their work environment. Um, it is difficult to uh, divorce the work environment from the learning environment at times. Um, so we uh, were able to overcome that by having a dedicated one-hour simulation um, prior to physician's shift start that they would come in early for. 
um, as well as um, for the nurses to, uh, to be able to attend after their night shift. So they would stay later by an hour. This is how much buy-in we had from the group that the physicians are willing to come in early and the nurses are willing to stay in late for the shift to participate in the sim. The uh, other part uh, that is integral is playing. Um, and I, I'm a big believer in learn, learn by play. Um, and it has to be fun. It has to be interesting and at times even funny. Um, so that's how you engage people and get them to participate. Again, we're doing this for patients and we're doing this so that we can all improve and we can learn from all of this. Um, Kevin and I are, um, we, we play basketball actually. That's how we kind of got into this whole podcast uh, together. Um, so I, I, I kind of make the dreaded sports analogy where, I mean, uh, we would never feel the Toronto Raptors without doing a single practice. So we are an interprofessional healthcare team, so we need to practice. And I think uh, taking it to that sort of basic level and understanding that, you know, we are in this to learn and practice and develop our skills. And um, always remembering that and framing that in the essence that, again, we are here because we are genuinely interested here to learn and improve the health of not only children that we see, but even in the broader essence of all patients that we see. And I think simulation is such a critical element uh, that can help us improve and become safer practitioners, more confident practitioners, and not only on an individual level, just from a, from a team level um, overall. Um, so I think um, when we design these simulations again, it's uh, and when we do these debriefing, I think it's having that sort of genuine um, goal of of, of improving and um, all of our scenarios uh, being designed um, with that goal. Um, uh, in mind and doing all of our debriefing with that goal in mind is one of those key sort of intangible things I think that separates people that just sort of do simulation on the side and people who do simulation really well and um, we talked a few times about building a really good culture about it and I think it starts also intrinsically from the ground up like um, we if you really want to improve the healthcare of people um, via simulation activities um, having sim activities that you yourself have designed with that goal um, is, is, is really a critical thing. And I think uh, getting a, that group of like-minded individuals that are a, a multi-interprofessional sort of group um, is that critical element that can help make or break how well your simulation program runs. So one other aspect as well for getting the buy-in and making our simulations valuable to our staff, I think, is making them as realistic as possible. So from the very start, when we work as a group to build our cases, making sure um, they're reviewed in terms of the reality of cases that we've seen before. So for example, if we just had a real-time case that went poorly, sometimes we'll use that as inspiration to build a case to help staff build their proficiency and their comfort level with that during the actual simulations as well to make them as real as possible. We use real medications. We expect the people that are participating to actually go through the motions of preparing medications to set them up on the pumps. If uh, there's a dosing error, if there's some kind of error that happens in the simulation to feel comfortable enough to step up and say something during that uh, simulation as well. So the reality aspect is really important to our team to build that culture of safety to make sure that we're functioning as a team and we use a quality improvement perspective as well. If we do simulations and certain opportunities come out to say, you know, we're not, we're not sure how we would actually administer this medication or we're not sure what the dosing is, that we use that as a learning opportunity 
to uh, focus our education um, efforts afterwards as well. So using that reality to kind of focus our quality improvement approaches throughout the department is a really important aspect of our program as well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. And just to note, I, I really, really hope the Raptors win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they actually won. Woo! So we talked a lot about about we talked a lot about the components that make a simulation program great, and we talked a lot about how sim doing simulations and the end goal is to provide good patient care. But the other piece would be how does it make the program and the quality improvement aspect of our program great? Uh, what I mean by that is how do we make how do we do a simulation and then learn something from that and then apply it to good patient care and apply it to make the system, the emergency department, uh, more efficient? Can you talk a little bit about the quality improvement piece? So during our simulations, there are many opportunities that are identified. We identify a lot of um, patient latent patient safety concerns. And so from the simulations, we take that and um, look at opportunities to improve upon those. So some of the things that come to mind are um, looking at our airway supply box and ensuring that all the supplies are there for the different types of airway emergencies. So we developed that. And then once we've implemented that, we've done another simulation to kind of test to see um, was there an improvement in that. And then if a real life situation were to come up, all the resources are there for that patient. And currently, um, what we're now working on is um, implementing a, a massive transfusion protocol for our pediatric population. And so right now, we're working through the process, and our plan um, going forward is to do a whole bunch of simulation testing to see, does the process work that we have laid out? Is there any areas of concerns? Um, can we improve upon certain things? Does it actually work in a simulation environment throughout various times of the day um, so that when it, an actual case does come in that, um, that it's seamless for that patient? Yeah, and to add on top of that, I think one of the really cool things that we've uh, been able to use our in-situ simulations for is uh, for some systems testing for some new outreach uh, applications that we've been working on. Uh, so one of the things we have started doing in McMaster Children's is uh, a teleresuscitation program whereby if a patient in a community hospital in the periphery uh, is, uh, is requiring resuscitative care and the care team there requires help from McMaster Children's Hospital or needs additional sort of pediatric advice, uh, they can actually teleconference or video conference via the OTN network the actual uh, resuscitation and get uh, advice from us uh, at MAC. Um, this is obviously a pretty big step for our division um, and we were able to use simulation as a means to test and develop and see if that OTN system actually worked, and also to build up our skills as um, resuscitationists uh, via teleconference, essentially. Um, so primarily, we actually had a recent case where so when we actually, sorry, we we're actually doing the simulations, what we, we ended up doing was we would have, we would travel to the uh, outreach site. Uh, so primarily these are sites at present at Niagara Health System. So we would go to each one of those uh, community hospitals. We would do a live simulation in situ within their division, within their depart emergency department. Um, and at the same time, use the OTN system uh, with a physician on the other end observing the simulation. 
um, and um, also providing feedback uh, and advice as if the case was actually unfolding in, in reality. Um, so we're able to f uh, test a bunch of things about uh, the OTN connection, um, develop our, our own um, system of uh, initiating, uh, recording, understanding how resuscitations happen um, in a, a teleconference kind of a setting. And um, we actually applied it recently in a case where we had a child presenting with an extremis that required immediate resuscitative care. And via some of the initiatives in terms of uh, actually how the connection was set up, um, some of the resources that we were able to access, the systems we had put in place because of the teleresuscitation simulations, uh, we're able to actually resuscitate um, uh, a child that was pericardiac arrest um, that allowed the child to safely arrive at McMaster where they were able to get definitive care and ultimately you know, like save that child's life. So it seems like this program is allowing not, a, not us just physicians to get better, but it also allows other programs and the departments to run maybe even better itself as well. So kudos to you guys for making such a cool simulation program work so smoothly. I think this is a question that it resonates really well with me because I want to know how to actually make a simulation program as good as this one. So some of the listeners, listeners here may want to get a simulation program started in their own local shop uh, using perhaps a similar model. Can you share some insights on how they can get started. What are some aspects that they need to get organized? Uh, it seems like you have a big team here doing different parts and uh, the, uh, the puzzle to, to make everything work. Can you talk a little bit about how, if someone has nothing and they wanted to start a simulation program, how they can go about in, in creating something uh, like this one? So I would encourage listeners to um, uh, think about uh, a formal one or two day course, simulation course, um, for debriefing. Um, really at the core of good simulation is uh, excellent debriefing and uh, uh, some understanding of the um, facilitation techniques are important. Um, debriefing courses are uh, readily available and then there is one in the Royal College and it's called SET course. And then there is an excellent course that I took as well as James um, in, uh, in Calgary and that's the ACID course. Dr. Doyle went uh, and did actually a full year fellowship of simulation. No, not everyone needs to do that, um, but uh, at least have um, a beginner's course. Um, the other important step is to identify some, in, uh, some sim enthusiasts uh, in, your, uh, in your department, uh, another physician, but also more importantly, an, uh, another nurse who is, who is hopefully in, a, in an education position, but if not, that's okay. Um, and, uh, and see what else allied healthcare professionals you have in the center, whether they are a pharmacist or, um, uh, or a child life specialist or an RT. Um, it would be it would be imperative uh, because the educational element that the physician can give to an allied healthcare professional is not as rich or valuable um, when given from uh, the same profession. Um, but also it enhances collaboration between uh, disciplines um, as well. And the other thing is uh, patience and patience and patience and tenacity um, and uh, being okay to fail and to experiment and to try different things. 
Um, we failed several times. We did not have excellent sims throughout this process. We learned from our failures more than we learned from our successes. And I think in addition to recognizing that failure is sometimes part of growing is finding those small wins to celebrate. When you're looking at your department, some of those small wins come from being able to observe what is that part of need that you see in the department? Where are the people really struggling? Is there a recent case that came through? And see if you can meet that need using your simulation. And I think that's going to be one of the best ways you can start off is making it a very tangible experience rather than some out there case or situation that they don't feel is as relevant to what's going on in the department right now. And celebrate what that team did well, I think is huge to increase your buy-in as the team goes on and, and get that up and running. Cool. Uh, as you guys are speaking, I'm ferocious to see you writing down the tips and hints. So to, to bring it back to my department. So thanks, thanks guys, uh, for that. Those those awesome pearls. While we talked a lot about the structure of Sim and the philosophy of creating Sim, can you tell us about an example of a, a recent or a Sim case that kind of highlights uh, all the things that you've talked about and all the things that you've worked on, um, and describe how it went. Uh, what makes the cases and how do you make sure that it has really good learning value for the learners and for the department and for patient care? Well, one suggestion I have would be that the best simulation cases come from real life. Um, with real life cases that you can then adapt and address certain learning objectives really are the best. They're, they're the best in terms of fidelity and also I think in terms of value to the team who may encounter that patient in the next shift or the next week or the next month or whenever it is. So a couple of cases come to mind. Um, one where we had uh, seen a patient uh, who was transferred to us from a community site uh, who had a facial smash injury. Um, and uh, the community site actually performed a crike on uh, the, the, the patient who was, a, remember, a child patient. Um, and uh, when the child came, we have observed how this crike has saved this patient's life. And uh, we wanted to simulate uh, a similar case, uh, even though we weren't the f team who had um, made the decision to uh, to. Uh, insert the surgical airway. Um, so I've uh, attended a, a conference uh, and I saw um, one of our uh, colleagues there who works in BC, she's actually an anesthesiologist, created an airway app uh, with a 3D model of a larynx, um, Dr. Dugan. Um, and uh, she shared the uh, 3D model with me and I printed the larynx in Hamilton Public Library for $2 um, in their 3D printer. Um, I brought it over and we uh, essentially put it on our mannequin and put some fake skin on top of it and uh, reproduced the case um, and had our uh, uh, trauma simulation. Um, I remember the uh, PEDS surgery fellow um, feeling the snap uh, when his scalpel has punctured the cricothyroid membrane and, uh, and, uh, and saying how realistic and how, how jittery he felt uh, during the simulation. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's like what Kevin was saying, it's the cases, uh, the real cases uh, that we 
we uh, reproduce into a simulation and uh, that leaves a mark on the participants and, and they remember the procedure um, and learn a lot from it. Um, and uh, the other case was a, was a massive um, a hemorrhagic shock from a significant trauma in an MVC. Um, where we had to give, uh, uh, we, where we had to give massive amounts of blood, uh, so we ran a sim as well, uh, experimenting with how we can deliver the blood the fastest to the patient, um, uh, and uh, we discovered that we don't uh, have a, uh, a a massive transfusion uh, code in the hospital, and from that stemmed the um, committee right now that's working on starting uh, a PEDS Omega code uh, for massive transfusion protocols. So another thing that our team has developed that I think is a really valuable tool, not only for ourselves, but something that's reached out far to our community partners now, is something that stemmed from simulation uh, in our medication dosing. So James and myself and a few of our other physicians in our department, uh, based on one of our simulations, realized that a lot of dosing information in our resuscitation rooms is available, but it's in very kind of hidden places that are more related to nursing practice of how medications are administered and whatnot. So it's not really user-friendly in the time of resuscitation need. So one of our, our big projects that we worked on as a stem off from simulation was the development of a medication resuscitation order. So this is now a double-sided in its version two application, a double-sided sheet that lists the most common resuscitation drugs with their weight-based dosing, what the maximum dose is if uh, people are not used to practicing in adult settings, for example, if you're just calculating doses based on weight, having in mind what that maximum ceiling dose is, um, and also different routes of administration. So it's a really kind of quick and handy tool that we use a lot now as part of not only our simulation, but part of our everyday practice in our department as well to guide safe medication practices. That's super cool. Thanks guys for sharing all that. Uh, and that, that crike case just got me, got, got some shivers in, uh, in my spine right now. So uh, hopefully it never... You have a video of it on Twitter. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I'm going to look that up. But uh I'm hoping it never happens to me, but uh, if it does, uh, you know, I think uh, doing simulation is going to help me at least visualize and ho hopefully perform uh, better uh, if that ever was to happen to me. Okay, so I think that's about all, like it for all the questions. There's a lot of cool, awesome information here. But before we go, do you guys have anything else you want to add? Anything that we may have missed or anything you think that needs to be highlighted? This is your chance. I guess... Um what I would want to say is that people that learn together tend to stay together. One thing I also just wanted to add, I think um, at McMaster Children's Hospital in our emergency department, we've been super, super lucky to have a team basically assembled uh, that can do all of this. And we recognize that this is a long and uh, and sometimes painful journey to build up a program like this. And we've been, again, super blessed with what we've had. Um, we wanted to say that like, if any of the listeners out there needed any extra help or suggestions or um, support as they build their own simulation programs, just feel free to contact any of us um, if you, with any of your questions or your suggestions. We're more than happy to uh, engage with that. Um, Megan, myself, and Mo, we call ourselves kind of debriefing nerds. We love to talk about debriefing. So if anyone um, has any questions about that, we're more than happy to, to talk about that at any time at length uh, in more detail than some people may ever, ever want uh, to 
learn or know about. And ultimately, I think I just think at the end, I think just to summarize, I think for our team, um, we we want to just sort of send out the message basically that simulation doesn't need to be scary, doesn't need to be an anxiety-provoking sort of situation. Simulation can be fun. Simulation is a is ultimately with the goal of improving, I think, the care of children and improving how we function as a high-functioning team. And um, it, there, these are opportunities for us to really, to ultimately at the end of the day, practice and get better and to build a great, strong culture. And uh, as, as Deep was saying, um, it it helps us stay together. Um, our job is pretty hard. We see lots of difficult patients in difficult extreme situations. And um, doing simulations is a way to practice that and to ultimately improve it uh, for so that when the patient actually arrives in real time, that we can offer the best care to them and um, help them out in their time of need. And I would like to thank all our division members for participating in SIM and being part of it. Um, simulation is not a one-man show. Um, it's everyone are equal in it. Uh, whoever is in this room or outside of this room in our department partic participating in SIM um, are equal members uh, of the simulation group. Um, always have clear motives for simulation um, it is not if it if you if the if the motive of simulation is for recognition um, the uh, participants will see through that you really need to have a clear motive and the clear motive which should be improving the care um, that you're providing to your patients uh, through group learning activities uh, in your department I want to piggyback a bit on what James was saying about simulation being fun and actually make sure that we're aware that it's not always fun for everybody. It can get to that point, but it's really important that we respect the vulnerability it takes to show up in front of your colleagues and potentially make mistakes. And the importance of setting the stage early and often of psychological safety, of reiterating that I'm here to learn with you as a facilitator is one of the first and foremost tenets of creating a SIM culture that will continue to grow. And building on that uh, is going to be a team of people who's willing to be curious. I said that earlier, but that's one of the most important lessons I've learned as a debriefer is approaching every situation with out understanding what that person was thinking and trying to understand what's going on uh, without assuming, because that's the best way to get everything out of the, that learning opportunity. One other thing I wanted to mention uh, goes back to James' story about the high-functioning team. And I was there observing that very well-run sepsis scenario and was struck by how well some teams really do function. But my challenge to you, if you feel intimidated by debriefing teams that are really high functioning, is asking whether or not they truly understand why they are so good at being the team they are and help identify the why behind the good team, not just the challenges uh, that you saw. Okay, thanks everyone for coming. That was an awesome podcast. 
I really, really enjoyed talking to everyone. Uh, you guys have all amazing pearls and amazing knowledge bombs that you've dropped on all of us uh, here today. And I'm sure the audience appreciates uh, your time and, and the efforts that you've taken to create such a cool program for McMaster. Thanks again for coming. And uh, oh, before I go, I'll uh, drop some information about how you can reach these guys if you guys want to you know, share more information or nerd out about debriefing. Um, so thanks again, guys. And then thanks again for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Kevin and the McMaster Children's Sim team for that segment. The segment is a bit longer than usual, but we decided to keep the majority of the content intact because we found the discussion fascinating. I hope you did as well. So just to summarize some of the points uh, they discussed. So it's just in terms of general setup, if you are looking to set up a simulation program, interdisciplinary approach is, is uh, key. Include the entire care team with a goal to practice and improve communication and teamwork with everyone that would be involved in the real world. Sometimes uh, making this interdepartmental uh, would be appropriate. That might mean the involvement of additional services like through a trauma activation or the implementation of specialized protocols that would involve additional hospital resources, such as the blood bank in the case of a massive transfusion. Try and make these simulations in situ if possible in the real work environment. Remember that SIM is not only to be used to practice medical aspects of the management of a rare, complex case, but also to help identify and troubleshoot logistical challenges that may be present themselves. That might include things like basic layout of resuscitation rooms, issues with access to critical equipment, especially if rarely used, or something like weight-based resuscitation medication guidelines for pediatric patients. They also spoke of some challenges and some tips to get around them. It is vital to make sure you understand the learning needs of your target audience and establish clear educational objectives. Start with a needs assessment. Perhaps start off your program with cases that address recent issues or challenges to make the experience more tangible to the learners. And they did point out that the best cases usually come from real-life experience. A thoughtful and constructive debrief is an absolutely essential part of SIM. Try to facilitate learning rather than teach at people. Discuss what went well and what didn't, and potentially what broader changes can be made based on what is learned. Something that was brought up a few times is that everyone must feel comfortable. It's important to maintain a non-judgmental environment and respect the vulnerability that comes with this type of learning. They also pointed out that taking a short course in SIM, especially ones that focus on debriefing, would be extremely helpful here. One of the more interesting tips brought up by the SIM team was to find a way to expand your learning outside of the SIM environment. Not everyone's going to be able to attend every SIM session, so if you can find a way to disseminate what was learned during the SIM session to a wider audience, it's an added opportunity. Thanks again to the McMaster Children's Sim Group. We're going to include their contact information in our show notes. Uh, so if you have any questions or are looking to start a program of your own, they're clearly a wealth of, uh, of knowledge. So feel free to take advantage of that. In the interest of time, we're going to be foregoing the Residence Corner section uh, this round. But after the Teaching the Count segment, stay tuned for a message from some of our McMaster medical students who are starting a Mac Emerge podcast project of their own. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. Hey everyone, and welcome back to this month's episode of Teaching That Counts, where we take you through a quick highlight of the educational literature and help bring tools right to the prime time for your shift. All right, so my name is Teresa Chan and I'm one of the clinician educators here at McMaster University. 
I'm Aleem Nagji, one of the Emerge Docs. Excellent. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is something that's near and dear to my heart because I am the Competency Committee Director and Competence by Design Lead for the McMaster Royal College Program. And what that means is a whole lot of letters behind a whole bunch of googly gook that most people don't really get. And so I think today we're going to explain a little bit behind the scenes about what that is. Those of you who have been here or in the region have probably seen some of the projects we've done before the Royal College rolled into this, um, where we did a lot of workplace-based assessments called McMap, so McMaster Modular Assessment Program. And so the Royal College decided they do their version of something like that. And so McMap programs no more, and we're now using the Royal College EPAs. So just as a bit of context. And EPA stands for Entrustable Professional Activity. And for those of you who are like, untrustable, is that a word? It's not a word. <laughs> it, it, it actually was created I'm by a guy. I'm Googling it on Urban yeah. Dictionary as we speak. Exactly. It's, it was created by a guy named Ole Tenkat, and who's, who is a leader and thought leader in medical education and health professions education. And in the Netherlands, he cooked up this term because it was the best way to explain kind of what these things were. And the idea behind it is that most of us naturally, when we see a learner, we decide very quickly as clinical teachers whether or not we can trust them or if we're hip checking them out of the way. So if they're a fresh clinical clerk and there's a CTAS one um, who is in need of intubation because the airway is going to imminently disappear because of anaphylaxis, um, I'm probably not going to let the clinical clerk do that. Now, uh, PGY5, what? Maybe, right? Because one of us has got to be at the foot of the pen looking at the situational awareness and doing all that stuff. Um, and so the idea would be, uh, would I still want to be in the room? Of course. And so we're anchoring some of these thoughts that we have in, intuitively to a scoring system. And the Royal College scoring system has five levels. Um, and, uh, and basically the idea there is to um, have you anchored at one end or needs a lot of assistance, that kind of situation where you had to do the task instead for the learner and all the way up to, I didn't need to be there. And doesn't mean that you weren't there. I mean that you didn't actually do anything substantive. So I think about it as like, you know, um, you know, the mother of the bride hovers a lot during a <laughs> wedding day, right? But does she literally need to be there or yeah. does she just have to be there because she wanted to be there, right? And so I think we do that sometimes. Like it's the stage mama kind of phenomenon of, you know, like your kids going on stage to do that ballet twirling and your functional status uh, other than like supporting them is not really required. And so that's kind of the way I think about it when I think about like the fifth level. And then there's like things like I need to be there just in case because then I started the post-sedation medications and, and after the intubation was pulled off, they kind of got a little frazzled. I picked up a couple of things, little tiny things that they would have got to eventually, but I sped up patient care, right? And then things like uh, I had to prompt, right? I had to remind them of this and that and that. Um, and then I think uh, the idea is I had to like guide them through it is definitely something as well. Um, and then again, I just did it for them because they couldn't do it, right? Yeah. So these are the kind of things that we, we talk about when we um, look at the actual EPA and entrustment. So it sounds like the EPA is really trying to take something that we intuitively know mm -hmm. and then give it some structure. Yeah. And, and this represents a pretty big shift in how we look at education. It used to be sort of the time-based model, right? Yeah. If I showed up for my four weeks of gen surge at 4 a.m., check mark, I know general surgery enough to pass my rotation, exactly. right? And, and we're now moving to that model where we can actually start to really get down into the nitty gritties of what does it mean to be a good emergency physician at the different levels? Yeah, we're getting away from just steeping our residents for five years and yeah. moving them towards 
something where you know we're looking for a certain quality, right? Um, and and I think that uh, the CCFPEM program is moving towards this. Uh, the Triple C framework mm -hmm. for family medicine the, uh, has been there for a long time, and so there's a rich history of these kind of movements coming about, and we're starting to see them manifest now. Um, at, at the bedside. So they're not these theoretical constructs that people are just talking about. They're actually things that are going to make a difference to us in our daily teaching lives. So let's zone in then, Teresa. Let's let's talk specifically mm -hmm. about the EPA for the resident in front of us. Can you give us some tips on how to navigate this new system? Because for a lot of us, this is completely different than what we're used to. Yeah. So let's say it was last month. I had one of our PGY1s, Chad. He won't mind that I talked about him. Um, <laughs> Shout but, out to Chad. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Chad live tweets like his whole EPA experience. So I don't think that he'd be shy about this. I'll I'll let them know. Um, but the idea would be that Chad shows up on shift and we high five or fist bump, you know, whatever you feel like. Yeah. Um, and then we sit down and we kind of like set what expectations. Chad was like super prepared. So he actually, because in his last block of PGY1, he had some things he really wanted to get done. So he has this little flashcard that he pulled out one day oh and he God. said, these are the ones I want to work on. I'm like, <laughs> Okay, I don't know I can make all these happen because some of them were very much um, very specific things. So, for instance, like first five minutes of resuscitation, mm -hmm. we don't get that many resuscitations. I can't guarantee him, but over three or four shifts, we made that. Like, I would make sure I called him overhead when we had a CTAS one. He was in the room at the foot of the bed there to do like the first couple of minutes until the paramedics handed over so that we could do that first five minutes, mm -hmm. right? And so by him telling me what he needed, I was able to be mindful and think about it, right? So it sounds like you're setting an agenda, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at what the learner actually needs to yeah. learn or wants to learn, yeah. and then what you're what you're going to teach. So it kind of sets that framework for what the conversation is going to be for that shift. Yeah, and it's a bit of a negotiation. Like I personally try to do as many EPAs as possible because I think it's possible. And so we actually had one shift where we had like seven EPAs that oh, wow. we did in one shift. I'm not saying that everyone should do that by any means, but I wonder if we can negotiate to do more than just just the one, right? Especially if you do it right at the time. So what we do um, sometimes is suggest that maybe in the first hour, get one done. Then you can let the rest of the shift go and not worry about the assessment and just coach or give feedback and just really teach. And at the end, if you saw something else over that shift, I got this Yoda moment I can't look away from, right? Like that Star Wars disturbance in the force, you can do a second one, right? And so the idea would be that you have like two. Try to see if you can spot these moments. And they're no different from teachable moments, I would say. You're not just pontificating, you're actually giving directed feedback based on something you saw, which I think is way more powerful. That, that's an important piece. So this is different from the global scale, right? So, you know, this resident did great this shift and mm -hmm. here are the things that you did well yeah. over the course of, you know, an eight hour shift. This is instead a direct moment where you've observed something. So whether that be a procedure, mm -hmm. a specific resuscitation, a mm -hmm. specific patient presentation, and then you're giving feedback on that encounter itself. Yeah, it's so much more meaningful, right? It's have, so much more rich. Have you ever had someone say, you know, and you're teaching evals, we get them all the time. We get like, great teacher. I'm like, okay, that's good. Or like, needs to teach more. Yeah. Very nonspecific. But at the end of a shift, if a learner is brave enough and says, you know what, Dr. Chan, Next time, could you like rein in the teaching? Because like you gave me so much teaching mm -hmm. that I didn't know what to do with it. Then I can actually say, okay, the context and that specific piece of feedback, I can take it in advisement and I can move on and do something better, right? Yeah. And so the specificity of that case and that day is really important. And so, I mean, obviously I'm not writing down like unit numbers and like names of patients, but I might say in the case of an elderly patient, like the one we had today, the collateral history from the nursing home and the family members is super important. 
right? And so that is contextually bound so that, you know, you might not do that for like a 50-year-old with chest pain, but you might do that with another 90-year-old who has dementia from nursing home. That's right. really good. I think the, the two big points there right off the bat, so negotiating what EPAs you're going to focus yeah. on and then striving to get that EPA done in the early part of your shift. And yeah. I really like that because it yeah. sets the goal and it makes sure you're both accountable and it saves it from another thing I have to do at the end of my shift, exactly. right? If I've, if I've knocked that EPA off in the first hour or two, I know I'm done. And if we get a second one, good, gravy. Or we have another thing that comes and complements that, I can put that down as well. Yeah. But I'm not left with another thing I have to do at the end of my shift. Yeah, and I think it helps focus you as to what you're looking for. So when Chad said, you know, can I get this kind of EPA, I was on the lookout for it. But then I also paid more attention, right? And it's less boring, right? It's kind of like when we're signposting to our trainees, like we talked about in the last episode, we want to signpost to ourselves. What do I want to observe and give feedback on? It takes the cognitive load off of having to observe everything they do and look at a couple of things. You've used like a lens from which to see the resident's performance. And I think that that's really powerful because we are all pretty darn good at our job. We wouldn't be at the places we are and we wouldn't be couched with the responsibility of teaching the next generation if we weren't good. So just relishing in that um, calibration that you have, that the pearls that you have, the teaching that you have, the wisdom that you have, but then filtering it by what they can accommodate, which is just in time what they're wanting and needing at that moment to move to the next step. That's super practical because I've had this experience where you sit down with the resident at the end of the shift and you're like, how did that go? And they're like, great, but I would have loved to see some eyes. And you're like, well, I oh. saw and sent home like five eyes Why didn't you the say day. something? Yeah, yeah, why didn't you say something? Yeah. So this way, looking forward, yeah. I can check the tracker and say, oh, you got a couple eyes here. Go ahead. I'm going to observe you for the slit lamp exam. Going to give you your EPA around that. And great, if another eye comes, we can build on that. Yeah. Right? And, and and the thing is, is that emerge, like, it's not like you're going to go and like poke people in the eye <laughs> just to get eye cases. So you have to yeah. be adaptable. When yeah. they say, I want to manage a polytrauma today, and you're at the Jervinsky Hospital, it's probably not going to happen, right? No. Or if you're in, uh, maybe it'd be more likely for you at Joe Brandt to maybe see a, yeah. a, a trauma case, right? Because then you're stabilizing the ship. Yeah. Um, and, and these are the kind of things that you, you have to be adaptable. So often I give that, I, I'm like the genie with three wishes. I ask them for three different EPAs because then I'm paying attention to like three parts of work. So how they can always do one of the ones that are more like, collaboration mm. and teamwork and communication with consultants and families like these things are with every single case they better be doing some of it or else they're not doing the job and you're doing too much of it right and so the idea here would be have some back pocket ones the ones that are not like trauma resuscitation penetrating trauma pediatric arrest those ones are so rare and honestly i don't think we should be like gamified to try to get them all right mm -hmm. we have simulation we have other rotations where they will see dedicated trauma patients they will experience pi ICU and PEM. So it's okay to have some bread and butter concepts that, of course, those are the moments that probably make work most enjoyable. Um, because a lot of the time it's the interpersonal stuff is being yelled at by a surgeon because you didn't do a consult well, that that moment derails the rest of your shift. So if there's a way for us to make that part of their lives better, they will be better resuscitationists, right? I, I like that three the three wishes kind of idea okay. for it because it also helps us emphasize how there's all these other areas of emergency medicine that are just as important and sometimes less sexy, right? So mm -hmm. whenever you ask an eMERGE resident, what do you want to do this shift? I want to do procedures and I want to do resuscitations. That's one and two. So having at least a third one in there is good. Yeah. And then also getting some specificity around it to say, okay, what are the specific elements we're going to look at? We're not going to look at all of res resuscitation science today. 
All right. So, and I think the next step is to communicate. So signpost it, make that moment, make that, like you were saying last moment, like teachable moment, like yeah. sing the Star Wars theme, whatever I'm going to get one of those like easy buttons, yeah, you know, exactly. like the <laughs> staples yeah, button. Exactly. <laughs> teachable uh, moments. Exactly. <laughs> Boom. Right? Like, so the idea would be let's find that signpost it, create the space. Because sometimes you don't want to do it in front of like five other learners, especially if they're more senior trainee. You probably want to make a little bit of space, like maybe in the corner of one of the recess rooms where the recess is done, but can I just steal you for a couple of seconds? I'm going to do your EPA in a couple of minutes, but let me give you feedback. Um, communicate it, set the stage, um, make sure that they understand that you're actually giving them advice or teaching around that specific EPA. If you don't know the number of it, that's totally fine. I don't care. But the idea would be um, that you knew that this is something that you wanted to focus on. I'm, I'm giving you that information now back. I like it too because it helps for the learner who's either excelling or struggling because mm -hmm. it gives you a context from which to frame it. Because yeah. not every learner excels in each area at the mm -hmm. same rate. Yeah. So you may be able to pick out something where, oh, actually you're really strong in this area, but mm -hmm. we found something where there's a bit of an area, a yeah. performance gap, right? So maybe your communication in this scenario wasn't as good as we would have liked. Mm -hmm. So we actually have something to, to, to talk about. Yeah. And for all the residents in between, like we're not yeah. perfect, right? Like we're always looking to up our game. So I don't think it matters what training stream they come from, because I think all of our trainees are hungry for this kind of feedback and coaching. They're not here just to get letters behind their name. I, I, for me, it comes down to that game winning shot that Kawhi took. And when you look at the interviews that he talks about, he talks about the fact that he took that shot so many times, yeah. right? And, and doing that in practice and having that feedback around that shot. So if you look at his interviews, he talked about how he missed the shot in the previous games and he talked about elevating the ball more uh, in the next shot, right? Yeah. And to get that shot yeah. over Embiid, right? And so yeah. it's the same way for our residents that mm -hmm. if they do something and it goes well or it doesn't go well, we're the coaches there who are going to provide that feedback and the EPAs give us a framework. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to take some of that mystery or that um, that fear around filling out the EPAs as this like big daunting encyclopedia of lists mm -hmm. and really break it down into, like you said, right at the beginning, is this something that I would trust this resident to do independently? Yeah. And where are they on that spectrum? And it's just one piece of work. We're not looking to have you assess everything you on a given shift you might do one or two of these and and two that'd be awesome but at least one um and if you're not sure exactly what goes into the epa what's nice is that there's also the milestones so the milestones are embedded within the epas and i know that for the ccfp or uh, em residents this might not apply um, but in the Royal College system, what happens is the milestones are the pieces of little pieces of work that go, they're like the recipe that goes into the pie. Um, so the idea here is that the, it breaks it down even further for more granularity if you want to give them more specific feedback. So in our workplace-based assessment system, there'll be um, drop downs that you can drop down and look at the heading and say, okay, I want to see it, you know, more detail, more detail. And so each of these kind of milestones are embedded within the EPA to help scaffold your thinking. Um, in the old MCMAP system, it was like that checklist that you had. And a lot of people use that to kind of scaffold their teaching around that specific piece of work. And so this is no different. The milestones give you some more nitty gritty. Um, yeah. If you want to just break it apart. It's kind of like cues, right? So I, I'm learning to skate and, and learning to take a slap shot, right? Yeah. If it if the box was just take slap shot well, that's not very descriptive, right? But if it breaks down, okay, hand position and the position yeah. of your skates exactly. and shifting your weight, it helps give you something where if you're not sure how to approach that EPA, it might give you mm -hmm. some pointers to think about. Yeah. You don't have to use every single one or talk about every single one, but it's something that's there for you to help guide you through that EPA, especially when you're new at filling these out. Yeah, and I would say that if you're like stuck that's where you do it or if the resident's stuck and you're yeah. like what's going on here i don't understand these are a scaffold for you to like break down the task because most of the people listening to this podcast even the senior residents 
some of this stuff will be seamless. Like it's just stuff that you do and yeah. you can't even remember why you do it that way. It's the same thing as if we ask Kawhi Leonard how he made a shot, he'd be like, I, you know, like I did it, but he might require some prompting to say, okay, so how do you put your hands? Where do you position your hips? These are the kind of things that you, it's hard when you're an expert. And so the milestones are there to help you bring back to that naive person that didn't know how to do this. And that's what the milestones are supposed to be, is to help with uh, redefining that. And so that's unpacking the EPA. And then I think the last thing is that um, you don't have to feel like you have to pass everyone. So a pass is, is a continuum. Entrustment is a multiple factor situation where it is the patient, the situation, your level of trust in anyone. You know, so are you a Fox Mulder or <laughs> a Dana Scully type yeah. or, you know, like a Walter Skinner and let them run around, right? Yeah. Like some people are just not able to trust people as much. And so entrustment might be hard for you. In which case your maximum, you're probably always going to feel like four is the max you could ever give. And, and that's okay. That's you. Um, we'll get more signal from other people and we'll adjust it and we'll figure things out. Um, the idea is that it's okay for them to be a one or two, especially sometimes some of the PGY ones are really ambitious. They have this growth mindset mm -hmm. and you know what? They pick something and transition to practice. Like I taught a med student today. Give me feedback on that. I'm like, that's in like the last block. Yeah. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, well, you already did like one other one that I, I did well on, but this is my reach goal. And I, and I really love that, right? Like they're, 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 they're logging one and then they're reaching for one that's a little bit outside of the realm. And so of course, PGY1, I don't expect them to supervise a trainee well, but they might have sat with them and sutured for like an hour while I saw a <laughs> bunch of patients in rest. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's the reality of how we sometimes double dip some of the trainees. And so if they had a really good experience, I check in with the learner, I get some feedback. And maybe they're not perfect. They did supervise for the whole shift. I'm like, well, you're not a one, but maybe you're a two, right? And so it might be that they needed some more prompting and we gave them some advice, but they're okay with that. And so um, I think it's just as long as you come from a place that you're not trying to penalize them, but that you're trying to explain to them why they achieved what they achieved. And that's nice to uncouple it from this idea, even of pass failing, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's also, first of all, not an, a global assessment in the shift. No. It's in the specific test that they perform. Yeah. And it also gives you a sense of how independent are they for practice. So mm -hmm. it's okay for someone who is reaching with that objective to maybe not meet that target. Mm -hmm. Or even if it's an objective that's in their, their year criteria, kind of where they should be, yeah. if it's something that they're not maybe as strong as, we should be flagging those because it gives a sense to the resident to say, hey, this is an area where maybe I'm lagging behind. Maybe there's a lot for me to work on or unpack in this area. Yeah. So and I like separating that out and not using terms like, oh, you failed the CPA or things like that. But no. this is the EPA where you do need a little bit more structure, a little bit more support. And it might be that some of the EPAs, I don't even trust myself, right? Like yeah. the harder the case, like I remember one situation where good thing there wasn't a resident involved because <laughs> me and the intensivist just kept on going back and forth, like what is going on, what is going on? And we couldn't make sense of what was going on. Um, and we were kind of stuck in this rut of we like, yeah, someone else needs to be here. We called the hematologist and it was like a difficult heme case, but it was very interesting because sometimes when the patient's sick enough, none of us are in that I didn't need to be there kind of zone. Like you wish that someone else, yeah. you know, like it's like it's, you know, we're recording this early in the year um, and, you know, like there's that meme of like you're an attending now, but you're 
realizing that you want to look around for the attending your attending, right? <laughs> Someone that's more senior than you that has yeah. more wisdom, right? You you really are Obi Wan looking for Yoda still. Yeah. Um. And so I think that that's one of those things is that sometimes the context and the patient will be so difficult that we all we do need to phone our friends and bring a consultant in, and everybody's having a case conference at the foot of the bed and trying to figure out what the next step is, right? And and we see that we see that with the trauma team, we see that with complex medical cases, we see that with complex social cases when we're like we gotta wait till. The morning, the social worker will come with all solutions, right? <laughs> and and these are the kind of things that we have to remember that sometimes, depending on the context, it's not the person's fault. It's that this is a, just a difficult, challenging case, and let's reflect on it together and yeah. log that um, because then it's something that can serve as a memory aid for later on when they want to reflect on their practice, and maybe they'll have really interesting things that they learn from that. Yeah, that's the humility that I think all of us have experienced in emergency medicine, right? Of needing to ask for help and, and ask for feedback. Mm -hmm. So let's go back and review what our tips for today. Okay, so number one, negotiate or collaborate with your trainee to see what goals they have. So whether that's an EPA or a McMap task, whatever it is they want to learn, push them beyond just your medical expert content. You're not mm -hmm. just a content expert. They could read a textbook. Sure. Set, that, set that objective. That's great. Mm -hmm. Number two is to strive to complete the EPA during the first two hours of the shift. Just get her done. Get it out of the way. And then if another opportunity arises, that's great. Get it done, right? Um, but I find like it's the same thing as I harp on a lot of our junior faculty. Uh, chart as you go. Um, <laughs> and so things, maintain that for the residents too. Um, you're going to be tired at the end of your shift. You want to get out. So do it. Do it and do it now. Um, number three is focus on the resonance performance and that observation because that's gold. You don't have to stay there for the entire five minutes and listen to the entire chest pain history. You need a couple of snapshots of listening in here and there. And then you might putter off and look at another ECG somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's okay. You yeah, only need to observe the sampling, a right? That, yeah. that, that tasting a piece of the cake and knowing what it, the whole thing tastes like. Yeah, exactly. So like a biopsy. Uh, number four is to adapt to unexpected events. Like if there's something really cool comes in, log it, right? It's rare. You got to do it, right? Number five, uh, communicate that feedback to be specific and actionable. We're going to talk about that in a subsequent episode. We're going to talk about how to make those things specific, but we're, we're going to talk about that later. So tune in next time. Number six is to unpack the EPA. Don't don't forget, just like you know, we have MD Calc for our decision rules for all the EPAs. The apps that we have are there, and you can explode down and explore the milestones to help you scaffold the idea. Um, and then the last thing is to remember that it's okay that people aren't always, I didn't need to be there. They don't need to be at the top end of the scale. Just be honest with yourself. Like, did you need to be there? Did you need to guide their hand to do that intubation? If so, then then you needed to help, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we'll have to really adjust expectations with our learners and even for ourselves, right? To be mm -hmm. able to say, hey, you know what? In this one, maybe you really did need a lot of extra support, but it's not a failure. It's just something we're going to work on for next time. Exactly. It's that I'm here as a helping hand along your path and I've observed something that I'd like to give you some feedback on. So let's move this mark together. I think having that educational alliance is the super important part because if they think that you're there out to get them, then of course none of this will even resonate, right? If people think that you're investing in them because someday you might turn to them for help, that's really important. And expressing that early on is also important as well. Like let's figure out how to move you to be a better version of you. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. 
See you next time. Hey folks, my name's Lauren. And I'm Ben. And we are two medical students from Mac and the co-hosts of the new emergency medicine podcast, ClerkCast. ClerkCast is phone med written by medical students for medical students, where we'll be breaking down an approach to some common eMERGE presentations. And we've got tons of cool stuff to go with it, from show notes to 8x11 infographics, and maybe even some cameos from your Mac eMERGE favorites. So if you have a keen medical student on shift with you, send them to our podcast on canadium.org, where we'll be breaking down some classic presentations, as well as some tips on presenting cases and organizing differentials in the emergency department. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at clerk underscore cast for all the latest updates. So uh, Lauren, what do you say we pull up your eval and get you out of here? Message received, Ben. Message received. Hi, I'm Alvin, and one of the uh, co-chiefs in the FRCP Emerge program here at Mac. Uh, we just had a fantastic research day, and I just want to thank everyone who came out. Um, shout out to our PGY2s who presented their best bets. Amazing research going on here. Uh, and uh, a special shout out to going out to um, Dr. Kelder and Dr. Bagri, who are guest speakers at our research day. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out.